It's Friday, May 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We have some movement in the college admissions cheating scandal known as Operation Varsity Blues. Two of the most high-profile parents involved, Lori Lachlan and her husband Massimo Giannulli, had decided to plead guilty after previously being scheduled to go to trial in October. The plea agreements do include jail time, fines, and community service. Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more on what kind of time they could be facing. Next, the coronavirus pandemic has exposed a lot of flaws in the way business is done in the U.S. Flaws in the supply chain were especially evident all over. But the great toilet paper panic of 2020 shows how something so mundane represents a complex supply chain. Because of what is called just-in-time manufacturing and distribution, toilet paper is still only seen in limited quantities, and manufacturers are still playing catch-up on back orders. Manufacturers have also had to adjust their packaging, which is why you might be seeing fewer options. Jen Bietchner, senior writer at Fortune, joins us for the case of the missing toilet paper. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Lori Lachlan and Massimo Giannulli have been really among the more public faces of the case, and they entered uh, into the court docket today um, plea agreements, and they will formally are are expected to formally plead guilty. Joining us now is Melissa Korn. Higher education reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Thanks for having me. We have a new development in Operation Varsity Blues. Actress Lori Lachlan and her husband, Massimo Giannulli, have decided that they're going to plead guilty in the college admissions cheating scandal. They were scheduled to go to court in October, but I guess things changed. So, <laughs> Melissa, tell us a little bit about what's going on. Yeah, this is probably one of the bigger developments we've had in the case in a number of months now uh, with Lori Lachlan and Massimo Giannulli have been really among the more public faces of the case. And they entered uh, into the court docket today um, plea agreements and they will formally are expected to formally plead guilty in a video remotely with a judge in Boston. For their part and why there was so much interest in their part of the case specifically, obviously, Lori Lachlan, Aunt Becky from Full House, everybody knew her and loved her from that role there. But they were so defiant in this. They said, you know, we did nothing wrong. Then they later they said, well, we thought the donations were for legitimate reasons. And you contrast that with someone like uh, actress Felicity Huffman, who admitted fault right away. She did some time. She apologized. She seemed genuinely sorry to be involved in the whole thing. And it wasn't really the case with Lori Lachlan and her husband. Yeah, they've been fighting the charges you know, since day one. They have a very strong legal team who filed many, many motions and memos calling into question the prosecution's conduct, the way they've done the investigation, saying that their clients had been snowed over by, by Rick Singer, the mastermind of the whole scheme, that he took advantage of them. They really didn't know that the, the things that happened were wrong. Um, and a lot of embarrassing information came out about the the girls, uh, their daughters, over the course of this. So they were pitched to USC as coxswains, as members of the crew team, and neither actually rode competitively. But uh, in court filings, we got to see you know photos that were submitted um they ended up not being used in the final applications to USC, but they had still been put together. And, you know, the girls posed for these pictures on an herb. 
Um, they had these fake athletic profiles that talked about all these awards and championships they had won for crew, which weren't real. Uh, and those are all hugely embarrassing for the family. Rick Singer had the pull with a lot of different people, whether they be people at the institutions themselves, at the colleges, or people that were uh, running tests, you know, for the SATs, the ACT, things like that. So he had the pull and the means to do all of that. So Lachlan and Giannulli are now the 23rd and 24th parents to plead guilty or agree to do so. What are prosecutors recommending that they serve because of this now? Right. So they, uh, so far, everybody who's been sentenced, uh, the parents who've been sentenced, all but one has got, been sentenced to at least some prison time. And the judge doesn't need to take the recommendation that's been agreed upon by the prosecutors and Lachlan and Giannulli, but they'll take it under advisement and it may guide them when they do their final sentencing. But they've agreed with prosecutors that they would recommend two months in prison and a $150,000 fine. And for Janouli, it would be five months in prison and a $250,000 fine. Janouli has agreed to plead guilty to an additional charge beyond what Lachlan's pleading guilty to. So one of the big questions that goes with this is, why now? Why did they decide to plead guilty after they had been fighting it for so long? I know they lost um, you know, some type of legal action that they were looking for a little bit ago, but you just have to bring it up. Does coronavirus impact this whole thing? There's already been a few other people who have been impacted by this. There was a California winemaker. He pled guilty. He was going to serve five months. He got released two weeks early in March because of all this. And just a few others, Michelle Janav, she's the heiress of the Hot Pocket Fortune, and a few others have been allowed to remain free till at least June 30th because of this. So obviously right away, people think maybe she's doing it just so they can get it done and then get out early or house arrest or something like that. Yeah. You know, I I don't know for sure how much the coronavirus pandemic affected the timing of this. Um, As you said, some of the parents have requested early release uh, and to finish out their sentences on home confinement. Uh, We're all on home confinement these days, I think, but um, perhaps that had a role. We're not sure. Uh, what the other thing you alluded to, the legal loss, many of the parents who are planning to take this to trial filed uh, and asked the judge to dismiss the case uh, and laid out a number of different arguments for why the judge should do that. And the judge declined to do so pretty recently. So it could be that that kind of last request being denied spurred some to rethink their stance in the whole case. Going to trial, you know, it starts and it would start in October for Lachlan and Janouli. It would take many weeks. It's a very public thing. They do have their daughters. They're trying to look out for their kids at the end of the day. So to my knowledge, these are the last two, I mean, highest profile, I guess, that have enough name recognition where people would know who they were and all. At least these are the last two as part of this case that are going to plead guilty. But there's still a lot of other parents and other people involved in this that are going to go to trial in October. And I think January starts another phase of that. So what's left for them? Who's involved in this and what's going to happen with that? Yeah, there's still a lot of bold-faced names here, probably not uh, household names the same way uh, Lachlan in particular might have been or might be. But there are finance executives, there are real estate developer, there's a real estate developer, there's um, a media executive. There's definitely quite a few members of the 1% that are still involved in all of this. And uh, as you said, there'll be two separate trials, one in October, one in January for the parents. And then there's still a bunch of coaches and one former uh, USC Athletic Department administrator who pleaded not guilty and will also uh, presumably be taking this to trial later this year or next year. 
Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So if a store like Walmart or Costco is seeing 5x more demand than usual, that's hitting the producers kind of in a snowball effect. So they're seeing 500x increases in demand, and there's just no way that they can keep up with the production. Joining us now is Jen Vietchner, senior writer at Fortune. Thanks for joining us, Jen. Thanks so much for having me. One of the most curious things throughout this whole coronavirus pandemic was the toilet paper shortage that happened and all the panic buying that was going on. I think in your article, Jen, you referred to it as the great toilet paper panic of 2020. And in some ways, it's still ongoing. I was just at a few different markets this past week, and supplies are very limited, if at all, in stock. I was at Costco. I didn't find anything. The only place I really found some was at a little corner market by my house. So that's where I've been getting it from lately. But throughout this whole process, this is one of the most interesting stories that has to do with supply chain and demand. And as I mentioned, panic buying. And Jen, you did a deep dive into the toilet paper industry. It was actually really, really interesting. Jen, tell us a little bit about what happened with this whole mess. You know, it's so surprising because you expect to be able to go to the store and find toilet paper. I don't think people really even give that a second thought. You know, it's something we take for granted. And at the beginning, everyone said, don't hoard, stop panic buying. There is no shortage. But it became very clear, and it's very clear now, you know, more than two months into this pandemic, that there is a shortage. And there absolutely was. And it's not even just panic buying. It's the fact that people need more toilet paper at home. So all the toilet paper you might otherwise be using at work or if you were traveling or going to restaurants, now you're using that at home. And so by some estimates, you're using 40% more than you would at home. And all kind of the consumer brands like Charmin, like Cottonelle, the kind you would use at work is totally different brands made by totally different companies. So the manufacturers of the stuff you're using at home, like Kimberly Clark, which makes Cottonelle and Scott, and Procter & Gamble, which makes Charmin, they're seeing huge increased demand. And so if everybody's using 40% more at home than they otherwise would, and even buying more than that to have it in stock so they don't have to go to the store as often, then these producers are seeing huge increases. So if a store like Walmart or Costco is seeing 5x more demand than usual, that's hitting the producers kind of in a snowball effect. So they're seeing 500x increases in demand, and there's just no way that they can keep up with the production. Even those companies are actually going through any buffer supply, anything they had on hand, they've been selling even what they might normally keep just in yeah. case. So they've been going below even the low thresholds they already kept of toilet paper. And that's why it's so hard to find. So you mentioned Costco. Costco isn't even getting the full amount of toilet paper that it's ordering to keep up with demand. So they've actually had to stop selling it online because it's on what's called allocation. Allocation is usually something that they would do for the season's hottest video games or a really, really popular toy come Christmas. Now they're doing that with toilet paper. So stores can only get a fraction of what they're ordering, even places like Amazon. They're not even getting the full orders. Right. And that's why it's still so hard to find even months into this thing. Yeah. I mean, I just went on Amazon earlier today to just to see what it was like. You can't get any really of the regular size packaging. The first thing that came up was a 
box for professional bulk boxes for businesses of 60 rolls, things like that. So you can start getting some of that stuff, but not kind of the regular stuff. And you were mentioning how some of the estimates were that people might need as much as 40% more toilet paper for their occasions. That's what the industry calls them, which is pretty funny. But sales were up nearly 71% year over year in these last few weeks through May 2nd. So they were just running at a deficit there. And a lot of what has to do with it that you wrote about is this kind of really complex supply chain. It's called just-in-time manufacturing and distribution. And because toilet paper is so big and hard to keep in a warehouse or something like that, they really only manufacture just enough for maybe two to three weeks of a supply because they can constantly keep making it, but it's a little less cost-effective to hold large amounts of it. Tell us about just-in-time manufacturing and how that whole thing works. Well, that's exactly right. So, I mean, if you think about something like toilet paper, you know, it's an extremely consistent demand, usually, right? It's kind of the epitome of a recession-proof product. No matter if times are good, if times are bad, people are pretty much using the same amount of toilet paper. It's just a matter of where they're using it. And this time it's at home. But because it's so easy to predict demand, usually, it's been this prime candidate for just-in-time manufacturing. You know exactly how much you need to order to put it in your warehouse because you already know how much you're going to sell in normal times. And it's really, really expensive to store more than that because, you know, think about it. It's huge. It's bulky. Even in your own cabinets at home or closets, you probably can't even store that much because people only have limited square feet. And so if you think about that on a warehouse scale, you know, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Walmart, they don't want like a mountain of toilet paper taking up all this space. So they're going to order just what they need for the week, maybe two, three weeks, and then they know they can get more coming in after that. But because everything sold out so quickly, they sold out weeks worth of supplies in about two days. And because of that, the manufacturers just can't keep up with that. And so they're going to be still running behind. And so this just-in-time manufacturing has completely fallen apart in the pandemic because the demand that people, you know, and the buying habits that people are buying so much toilet paper, just that behavior has completely upended the entire demand supply balance. So you can no longer predict how much people are going to buy. And when they're going to the store, like you said, when you see just one or two packages on otherwise empty shelves, people are just going to grab it because it's like a rare commodity now. So a lot of these companies have increased their production But they're still kind of running at such a deficit that they have so many back orders that they need to fill. Some are saying that these back orders are likely to last into the summer still. So there will be this kind of shortage, ongoing shortage for a little while now, which is kind of unfortunate. (laughs) But the other part of it is people will just say, well, hey, why can't they just make more, get some new machines or something like that? But that isn't really cost effective either. I think an additional paper machine would require an investment of up to $300 million dollars. For some of these companies. They're huge machines. They're so expensive. A paper machine might be two stories high. You know, and to come to build that kind of facility, it's just this huge investment. And part of it is again the bulky factor. Where are you going to keep it? How are you going to produce it? Or something that's just physically smaller, like Tide detergent or soap, you can produce that. You might just be able to open up one more assembly line to fill those bottles of detergent. 
for only a few million dollars, under 10 million probably, whereas paper is just so much more space consuming that they need these big facilities and it's a much bigger investment. And if you think about it, no company is going to put down a $300 million investment just to keep up with demand for the duration of the pandemic, which come a year from now or maybe 18 months, hopefully probably isn't going to still be our reality. So that investment isn't going to pay off. So there is physical limits to how much companies can produce, as well as just how much they're willing to produce, because nobody wants to be stuck with a huge amount of extra toilet paper. I'm sure you don't want to, I don't want to, neither does Walmart, you know, neither does P&G or any of the manufacturers. And one of the interesting notes in your article too, is how really thin the profit margins are with this. I like the little note, toilet paper really does grow on trees, mostly from eucalyptus trees in Brazil, which is just an interesting side fact of all of this, but importing it from all over there and this kind of thins out the margins. So making a whole new machine, just not really cost effective for a lot of these companies. What paper is made out of, it's called pulp. That's the commodity that goes into that. And so there are market prices, but at the same time, you can only raise the price of toilet paper so much before you get accusations of price gouging. People aren't going to just pay more for toilet paper because it's in higher demand. Consumers just aren't willing to do that. And so in order to keep this good cheap, the entire industry has cut costs wherever they can. I mean, if you think about it, people are ordering toilet paper online. It's pretty cheap already, and yet you have to ship it. So they have to cut costs wherever they can. And so that's why they're going to Brazil, simply because those eucalyptus trees grow faster than the trees that you might find in the US and Canada. So you can get a a hundred foot tree in something like six or seven years, whereas that might take 80 years in North America. And so the fact that they grow fast, they even grow faster than corn, makes them cheap, which enables companies to keep those margins down. And that's also why, you know, talk about the just-in-time manufacturing, you don't want to be paying for extra space to store it. You want to have the fewest people, you know, on the most efficient machines as you can. And you are already running those machines as much as you possibly can, because once you put the investment, you don't want them sitting idle for a third of the day. So these machines under normal times are already running something like 92%. During the pandemic, that's actually increased to 99.8%. So they're shutting off the machines as little as they possibly can. They've even reduced the number of different kinds of toilet paper they've produced. You know, So you might have ultra strong and ultra soft, but not gentle care or something like that, just because <laughs> you have to turn off the machines. So the machines are running basically 24-7 as efficiently as they possibly can to save money and to produce as much as they can. Yeah. And things might not go back to normal the way they once were. As you mentioned, the different types of toilet paper, I think Kimberly Clark with the Continental and Scott, they reduced from making these 12 roll packs to doing six pack rolls and they might kind of continue with that. So you might not see the same variety once kind of the pandemic cools down. So that's how a lot of these manufacturers are adjusting to what's going on. Well, that's what's so interesting. You know, it's they've really even discovered how to save more money during this and and how to be more efficient. And one of those ways is just to reduce the amount of different kinds they make. And so then they have to turn off the machines fewer times and can keep them running longer. And they said, well, hey, that's actually more efficient. One interesting comment from P&G is that just the social distancing requirements that they've put in. So whereas they might have 12 people normally working on a factory line, they now have six. And so the other six people can go and work an additional shift. Well, that's much more efficient because you can get more productivity out of the same amount of people. So there's going to be a lot of changes that these companies are making after the pandemic in terms of cost savings, in terms of how they can be more efficient based on what 
what they've learned in this crisis. Jen Vietchner, senior writer at Fortune, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.